1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Are, are we going to have uh, this or not? Okay, I'm not going to worry about it. In, in this, your, your Bible or your phone, all right, uh, or your tablet. Um, and, and, and those are great ways to follow, but please do. And, and as we've been suggesting, I would continue to encourage you, have a pen or pencil or some way to mark your Bible or your phone, the apps that you have. If you don't know uh, how to do that, um, talk to Scott. <laughs> Scott and Haley are away uh, for a few days, so you'd be praying for them. But uh, anyway, the opportunity to, to mark up your Bible, circle and underline, and uh, it, it really helps you to remember so that you're aware of all that's going on. So verses 1 and 2, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? That sums up the problem that Paul's addressing with the church at Corinth. We talked about this. We began this whole text two weeks ago before Easter. And um, so let me just review a little bit as we go through that. But Paul's concern in chapter 5 is for two things. First of all, the restoration of the individual who sinned. Wow, we have it up here. Man, you guys are amazing. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Nicole. I see Chris pointing at her. But um, anyway, yeah. So, so the restoration of the individual, the individual that sinned, all right? Immorality. That's what's going on there. So Paul's concern is that he be restored, that there's repentance, and that that individual be restored. Uh, but secondly... The concern, and we'll see this more today as we look at the end of chapter 5, we'll see that Paul was also concerned for the protection of the church. Sin not dealt with in the church spreads. And we'll see in just a minute the, the example, the illustration that Paul used of, of leaven or ladies of yeast in bread and, and the dough actually and how that spreads. And so Paul's concern is both for the individual, the restoration of that sinning individual, but it is also for the protection of the church, that the church remain pure and holy, that the sin is dealt with so that it doesn't move out amongst the people or so that God's people, and it may not be the same sin necessarily, but when we don't deal with sin, it's like, all right, so big deal. And it just creeps in and takes over. In fact, this man, this sinner that's mentioned in verse 1, uh, if in fact he is a brother, in other words, a follower of Jesus, and we'll see later on down in the text that he claims to be. He claims to be a brother of Christ, a follower of Jesus. He needs to repent and to be restored to a right relationship, number one, with God, 
Number two, with the, other, with the members of the church. That's critical. We need to understand that. John read a little quote about the purity of the church, about the importance of the church, about the grace that provides the church. We are the church. And it is critical that we understand that when sin enters, there's repentance and restoration necessary with God and with the church. And the church has the God-given responsibility to pursue that restoration to be the initiators, the facilitators of that restoration. We just don't leave them alone and pray and and hope that God does something in the heart of that individual. It is our responsibility as the church to encourage that sinning brother, in this case, in life or sister, to get right with God. Now, Some might ask, I was asked this question uh, a couple of weeks ago. We read, as we read through uh, chapter 5, we read nothing about any mention of this woman with whom the man was involved in an immoral relationship. Well, why doesn't Paul mention her? And we don't know exactly other than I would say, I think it's pretty clear that simply she wasn't part of the church. And probably, therefore, not a believer. And so, therefore, Paul doesn't bring her up because the church doesn't have a responsibility to deal with her sin. She's not a believer. She's not a member of the church. That would be my answer to that question. That's pretty much the standard uh, response, and yet I, I think that's true. I, I believe the, the Paul's serious concern for sin, if she was a part of the church, if she was a fellow believer, he would have said something about her. We had mentioned in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, both of them sinned, and they were both dealt with. In this case, it's not. You could read Hebrews chapter 11, whom the Lord loves, he punishes or chastens. God will not deal that way with an unbeliever, and in this case as well, someone who wasn't part of the local church. So that would be my response, why we see nothing here about the woman with whom this man was involved with. So this morning, here's what I want you to know, and here's what I want you to respond to. And when we're done, I'm going to ask you to to think about how you may need to respond and be ready and willing to respond when God presents those opportunities. But the idea of this, we need to know and respond to this truth that restoration requires communication. Write that down. Restoration requires communication. If we're going to restore a sinning brother or sister, their communication must take place and we'll elaborate as they move through. So two weeks ago, we talked about what is the problem. And, and by the way, if you haven't yet opened your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please do so. Or get that place in your uh, phone or tablet, wherever that is. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so we looked at that in the first two verses. We identified the problem as Paul brought it to be. And there's three different emphases there. We mentioned sexual immorality, incest. As Paul says, the kind not even tolerated by pagans, by unsaved people. Secondly, he called them proud. They were puffed up. In verse 2, he mentioned that. You're proud. What's he talking about? Well, their attitude was as bad as the sin. 
Because they weren't dealing. They tolerated the sin. They weren't dealing with the sin. Verse 6, Paul says, your boasting is not good. They were boasting about them as a church and they had a lot of things going for them, but they weren't dealing with the sin and he's saying pride was a problem. And then number three, you have not put out of the church the one who has been taken in sin. They weren't dealing with the sin. Paul said there in verse 2, shouldn't you rather have put out of your fellowship? Now when we see that word fellowship, some might think church, and, and it is congregation, but that's not the regular word for fellowship. That word simply means you haven't put out from your church the one that's among you, the one that's in your midst, the one that's part of the congregation. And that's what he's saying you should have done as a church. So then we talked about, all right, so what should be done and Paul says there in verse 5 that you should have handed this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. That sounds harsh. And folks, I want you to get, make sure you understand as we deal with this, as we talked about this two weeks ago, as we wrap up this text today, it's important that we understand God hates sin. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. Paul takes sin seriously and is concerned about the holiness and purity of the church. And so Paul says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means this, excommunication. Putting him out of the local church out from underneath the blessing of the church, out from underneath the opportunity to be part of the worship and the fellowship. In this case, the fellowship means, yes, that Bible word, sharing in common. What do we have in common? We have the person of Jesus Christ in our lives, if you know him today as your Savior. And putting him out from underneath the love and the care of the body of believers. We're loving and caring for Dale and Dolores and their family. The same thing holds true for Janet Bunce and for, uh, uh, for Sandra. We're doing all that we can to care for them and provide for them. And when a person is put out of the church, that doesn't happen. We'll get more to that in a minute. The MacArthur Study Bible says this about this verse or what that means. Divine chastening for sin that can result in illness and even death. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, communion, Paul was telling the church about their problem, and he said, some of you are already sick and have gone asleep. In other words, they were physically ill, and God had taken some of them home to heaven, took their life. That's how serious God is about sin. And this idea of handing the man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, he is intended to help that individual feel the weight of his sin. If he, in fact, is a believer, it's intended to produce repentance. Check out Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 for the battle between the flesh and and the spirit because as we see the idea here of the destruction of the flesh I believe has to do with the destruction of the fleshly desires Paul talked about that back in chapter 3 in verse 3 fleshly being controlled by the flesh rather than by the spirit 
So then thirdly, what's really at stake? What's really at stake here? What's, what's the issue that ought to concern us? Well, in verses 6 and 7, Paul talks about this again. We mentioned your boasting is not good, he says. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of. That's an imperative. It's a command. And it's plural. Second person plural. You don't have to know Greek to know English grammar, right? Because we all went through school here, and, and we know English grammar, right? Uh-huh, sure. That's probably your favorite subject, right? English, I, I have to admit to you that it was not my favorite subject by far. I'd rather do math. Actually, I loved math. But, but the, idea, the, the idea is when he says second person, plural, second person plural, that's you, plural, he's talking about the church, us. That's what he says there, you get rid of. It's a command you, the church, get rid of. It is our responsibility to deal with the sin. It's not just an option. You get rid of the old yeast so that you, plural, may be a new unleavened batch as you really are, as you, the church, already are. We are who know Jesus already holy. We've been declared holy by God when we believe, when we by faith receive the risen Jesus Christ as Savior, as the forgiver of our sins. We were declared to be holy, but Paul continues to emphasize, even though you've been declared holy, your position before God is holy, we need to live holy lives. And that's what he's talking about here. You really are already holy. You've been cleansed of your sin. The yeast has been removed. So for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That happened years ago. Now we continue to celebrate the the Passover in the sense that we celebrate Christ's death on the cross for us. That's what last weekend was all about. A reminder, but it ought not to be just a once a year occurrence. And that's why we celebrate at least once a month the Lord's Supper. We remember Christ's death till he comes. As we talk about that, it's critical that we understand as believers before God, we the church are made holy. We've been declared holy. We've been, been, been had the, our sin forgiven, but now we must continue to live that way and deal with sin when it enters the church. Paul is concerned about the spiritual well-being of the church. He's, he's about seeking repentance and restoration for this individual who was caught up in immorality. But he's also concerned about the holiness of the church to protect the holiness and purity of, that, of our church. It is critical that we not allow sin to remain. Now, write this down. We're not going to take the time to go back, but there's what we call the Aiken principle, A-C-H-A-N. And some of you, that may ring a bell, it may not. Joshua chapter 7, the whole chapter, when Israel had uh, entered the promised land, 
and uh, had gained, gained a victory. God said you destroy all of the goods that you get from that victory are to be given to God. And Achan, one individual, kept some of it for himself. Kept some gold and silver and clothes and buried them in his tent. And they went out to battle and got the daylights beat out of them. And Joshua and the leaders of Israel fell on their face before God, crying out to God, Why, God? Why would you let us do that? We're in, we're in the, Can- the land of Canaan, the promised land. Why in the world? And he said, Get up off your face and off your knees. Stand up. And you got to understand there's sin in the camp. Deal with it. And it was Achan who had disobeyed God, and as a result, the whole nation suffered defeat. And if you doubt that principle, it's there, and this is exactly the principle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Check it out, Joshua chapter 7. Listen, the idea is, as we've been saying all the way along, God's holy people must become what they already are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And, and Paul's, he doesn't let go of that. Why? Because the church who have been declared holy must live holy lives. Because if we don't, the lack of holiness, the lack of dealing with sin, the lack of purity before God will compromise our ability to accomplish the mission that God's given us. It won't be a priority. Our message won't be Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that catches us up. So we get down now to verse 9. So what are the implications of all of what Paul is saying? What's, what, what is the, what are, what's happening as a result of what Paul is dealing with? Paul intended us to read these next verses exactly as he wrote them. In the plainest sense possible. This is not any foreign language, folks. When we read these verses, I'm going to read them for you. You follow verses 9 to 13. It is very clear. Paul means exactly what he says. The plain sense of these words are exactly what he's trying to communicate. So follow with me. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, I wrote to you. He's talking to the church, the believers. In my letter, the letter that we don't have record of, all right, the letter that was written before 1 Corinthians, all right, we have no uh, copies of that. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, when he said that in the first letter that he'd sent them, there was some misunderstanding, or at least Paul thought there might be. So his desire was to clarify. So he says this, verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. He says, I'm not talking about not associating with people who He says, of this world who don't know Jesus. I'm not talking about people who are unsaved people, who are pagans, who are Gentiles. Those are the words that Paul uses. Those who have no relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not talking about them. You can't separate yourself from them. He says, if you could, you'd have to leave this earth. That's the only way. Why? Because people who don't know the Lord are everywhere, right? 
and, the, and they sin because they don't know the Lord. They can't help it. So he says, I'm not talking about separating from them. But he says, verse 11, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who claims to be a brother or sister. And that's what the guy we talked about up in verse 1 claimed to be a brother all right, he says, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler, do not even eat with such people. People who claim to know Jesus, to be followers of Jesus, but live like this. And we're talking a pattern of life. We're not talking one occasion here or there. We're talking a pattern of life. Verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, those who do not know Jesus? Are you not to judge those inside the church? And guess what's coming in chapter 6? Believers going to law against one another. Yeah, and we'll get, that's next week, all right? And uh, God will judge those outside. That will happen one day at the judgment seat of Christ. But he says, expel the wicked person from among you. Get rid of them. That's pretty plain, isn't it? You have any question about that? Paul's not saying not to hang out with unsaved people. How do we reach them for Christ if we isolate ourselves? I tell you what, there, there are churches, there are schools, there are individual believers who think separation is isolation. It is absolutely not the case. We have a responsibility as those who know Jesus to reach people who don't know Jesus, and that comes from a relationship. Being with them. And that's what Paul's talking about. But he says, we do have a responsibility to not associate with those who claim to be followers of Jesus and who live as if they aren't on a regular basis. Now that you may say, well, wait a minute. We, we were told earlier in chapter 4 that we ought not to be judging. Paul even said that. Don't judge me. Now we're talking a different situation here. You see, what was going on back then wasn't sin, wasn't truth were, were rumors were things that the divisive people were trumping up against the leadership of the church what we're talking about here is sin is guilt he said paul says it's actually reported and he said well how do we how do we know that's not secondhand information because of how paul is dealing with the church and how he's talking to them it's obvious that the church knows that this has gone on and even people outside the church know that this has gone on and we'll get to how we deal with that in just a minute but when a church can no longer affirm that a professing believer is a genuine believer it must put them out of the church See, because that's what a pattern of sin indicates. 
about an individual who claims to be a follower of Jesus. When there's a pattern of sin, and it may not be just one kind of sin. In this case, at least it was. That's what Paul was talking about. Why this guy needed to be put out of the church But the fact of the matter is, the external always reveals the internal. Those of you guys who were on the men's retreat, you heard that from Dwight as he preached about being like Jesus. But you've heard it from this pulpit many times. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. He said, out of the overflow of your heart... You will speak. You, what will, what's in your heart comes out of your mouth. What's in your life, what's internal, will show itself externally. Our behavior is the result of what's happening in our heart. Jesus said that, and so that's why an individual who claims to know Jesus, but has established a, a pattern of living as if they don't know Jesus We have no other option except to believe that they don't really know Jesus or they wouldn't live the way they do. Now that's hard stuff. Discipline must come when the behavior of one who claims to be a believer causes question about that claim. See, what he says in verse 11 about we shouldn't associate ourselves with a brother or sister who, who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. See, he doesn't say who does those things. He said that's what they are. So there has been an ongoing pattern established. You see, what happened in verse 1 of chapter 5 was still happening. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. The language in verses 1 and 2 is that it's still going on. And that's why Paul says he should have been put out of your midst. And verse 11 is not an exhaustive list of the sins for which we discipline people. It It is an example. It is a there to emphasize that when there is a questionable pattern of sin... then the church must respond. So what's the bottom line? Well, if in fact this man is a brother, a follower of Jesus, he claims to be, he needs to repent, to be restored to a right relationship with God and the church. That's why the church is involved. And again, we as the church have the God-given responsibility to restore him and deal with his sin. And as that church discipline is exercised, here's the idea. His salvation, the, the true colors of that individual who claims to be a follower of Jesus will show. The salvation will show through. Why? Because Jesus said what's inside will show itself outside. What's internal will show itself externally. And when there's a reality of a changed, transformed heart, as this individual claimed to be, when this discipline happens like this, 
it will be known whether or not he really knows Jesus. That's the intent. Now, Matthew chapter 18, because, you see, that's typically the passage that we know when we talk about church discipline. And you say, well, wait a minute, in, Second Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians 5, where, where do we see Matthew 18 in there? In fact, there's no talking, there's no one-on-one, there's no one-on-two or three. Uh, there's, it, it's just, ha- Paul says, kick him out of the church. Well, I believe that 1 Corinthians 5 probably happens in verse 17. So let's look at that. Matthew chapter 18. And, and I'm just going to walk through these verses. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. First of all, first step, just between the two of you. What do we, what do we many times as believers do when we see sin? especially if if it's against us. We don't go to the individual. We go to everybody else. Right? Now, not here, not this church. I know there's other churches where that happens. But yeah, I mean, typically we we know, and, and it doesn't mean we tell the whole church, but we go to somebody else who doesn't have anything to do with the problem and let them know. That's not right. See, that's almost grounds for, if that's a regular habit, grounds for discipline. So we go just between the two of you. We go when we see a brother or sister sins. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over because that's the goal from the outset. Restoration. You've won them over. They will repent. They will admit their sin and acknowledge, and that's what Paul or Jesus is talking about. Verse 16, step two. But if they will not listen, if the one-on-one doesn't go well, and and, and folks, this just doesn't have to be a one-time deal. And sometimes we think that, well, if I talk to them once and they don't want to listen to me, that I'm done. Now, you're going to have to look at those situations individually and with a lot of prayer, but it may be that you go back to them a second time, you and them only. Because the goal, again, is that we win them over, that we see repentance, that we see confession of sin. But if that doesn't happen, take one or two others with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. God set that up in Deuteronomy. So that, so that the word of an individual was established as legitimate by two or three witnesses, not just one. So he says, you take a couple of people with you. And then you talk to them about that. So now the two or three, the idea is again to help bring that individual to their spiritual senses. That's what's involved here. Jesus is saying, and of course, all through here, your desire is... To win them over. Right? To win them over. That's what he's talking about. Verse 17. If they still refuse to listen. Step three. Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. We have done two or three, Paul, 
disciplines over the last four, five years. We had individual conversations with the individuals that we presented. We then had conversations with two witnesses. So there were two or three to verify and have the conversation. And then we've told it to the church. And when we told it to the church, if you were here for any of those situations, you heard us lay out for you the facts, not the hearsay. That's why you have the one-on-one conversation and then the one-on-two or three conversation. But we laid out the facts, and then what did we do? We said, folks, this is heartbreaking. We need to pray for this brother or sister. And we're going to keep praying. And the idea then is as well, we challenge the body of believers that we call heritage, the church, to pray and to pursue. And if you know that individual, even if you don't pray, period, for their repentance, but, but seek to talk with them, have a conversation, you go and, and talk with them. What happened? What's going on? Why don't you see your sin? Why won't you deal with your sin? Take some others. And, and this process can take a while. Because again, the goal is to win them over. Restoration, repentance. Not just to go through, here's discipline, one, two, three, boom, they're out. Because these are brothers and sisters or those who claim to be brothers and sisters that we love in the Lord. And Paul said to the church there, you need to be mourning over your sin and you're not. Verse 17, the B. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the point at which Paul is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The last half of Matthew uh, 18, last half of verse 17 of Matthew 18. That's, I believe, where if you wanted to plug in 1 Corinthians 5 to say, well, why didn't they do it? Well, Paul doesn't bring all that up. He just, here's the deal. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians were, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And this is the last resort. This is not where we want to start. We don't even want to get here. This is the last resort. And knowing this, this knowledge means we must respond and it means we must communicate. That's why I've said to you at the beginning, I gave you the sentence to write the three words. Restoration requires communication. And when you see somebody in sin, you have the responsibility to have a conversation. We say that around here in our office all the time, and some of you who who know and have been involved in the situation, have you had a conversation, a spiritual conversation? Have you talked with them? That's where Matthew 18, verse 15 begins. You, one-on-one. Then you, one on two witnesses with you. Have you had the conversation? It requires communication. We don't just pray. We do that, absolutely. But we communicate. We have a conversation. We talk to them about the sin. 
Did I say we have a conversation? And I don't know why that is so difficult. Well, I do. No, nobody likes to get involved. I, I'm just, and, I, and I hear that, well, I'm just not good with confrontation. Okay, but what does God say? You see, we left off with two weeks ago, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who walk by the Spirit, restore him gently. What does that require? It requires a conversation. It requires communication. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that's not super Christian. That should be every one of us who claim the name of Christ most of the time. Yeah, we all sin. But you who live by the Spirit should be all of us most of the time. And when we do sin, we go to 1 John 1, 9 and acknowledge, confess it, say the same thing about our sin that God does, and then what we do is we repent so that we're living by the Spirit. Sin should not have control. Unconfession, sin should not be there often or long. So that we can live by the Spirit. And so that's all of us who have that responsibility to talk to the individual who has been taken in sin. That is the bottom line. This is a shepherding process. So what's our response? I'm not saying go out and look for sin under every rock or around every corner or behind every dark closet door. I don't think we have to look that hard. Because sin is everywhere. And if we see brothers and sisters who aren't where they ought to be, who aren't dealing with sin in our lives, we have a conversation. We who are walking by the Spirit Seek to restore that person gently. That is what Jesus said. That is what Paul is doing. That's how Paul responded. Restoration requires communication. That's what our response must be. Because it goes right back to where we began. Chapter 1 verse 2. Holiness, holy people, God's holy people must, must become what they already are. And if we see sin in our midst, in our friendship, in our relationship, and we don't do anything about it, we're not holy people. We're not, we're not becoming what we already are. Because part of our responsibility is to obey God in that regard. God's holy people must become what they already are. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he gave us direction about how to deal with sin amongst those of us who know him. Oh God, I just believe that if we'd be obedient in this manner and churches across the world would be different. Because just like Achan, at times there's sin in the camp. Whether it's division, 
or immorality or dishonesty, swindlers, greed. God, help us as your people to deal with sin in our own hearts and as well be concerned about sin in our church, in the lives of those who we know and love as brothers and sisters in Christ. God, help us to be like Jesus who regularly dealt with sin in the lives of those around him. God, help us to be a holy church so that it's obvious to all those around us that we've not just been declared holy, but we're living holy lives for the glory of God. Oh God, use us as holy people to accomplish your mission to reach this world for Christ. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us. Have a great week.